The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello there, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry, host of The Glenn Show. I teach at Brown University, and I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show, and every other week, I talk with my longtime conversation partner, John McWhorter, who's with us this week. He's a professor at Columbia University, writes for The New York Times. We are fortunate this week uh, to have as our special guest, Coleman Hughes, Coleman is an influencer, an uh, opinion writer, a podcaster. Uh, He has a Substack newsletter that he calls Coleman's Corner. Conversations with Coleman is his podcast. It has a large following. Um, And he's the author of a book that's coming out from uh, Penguin Random House uh, called The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America, uh, which will uh, be available in February of next year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but it can be pre-ordered now at Amazon.com. So, Coleman, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to be on The Glenn Show. All right, Coleman. Uh, you have been in the news of late. I saw you in an interview with Glenn Greenwald. I've seen you holding forth on your own uh, platform. And uh, you're on a tear, as I can, as best <laughs> I can tell, <laughs> of... Uh, of unhappiness and anger and, uh, you know, uh, dissatisfaction with the way that you were received by the TED Talk organization. I wonder if you'd uh, get us started by uh, saying a little bit about what happened and uh, what your problem is with what happened. Yeah, so if you want the real detailed version, you can find it on my Substack. I'll try to give a slightly abridged version now. Basically, uh, TED invited me to give a talk about my upcoming book. And by Ted invited me, I mean, Chris Anderson, the head of Ted invited me. He is a person that like many leaders of institution in institutions is dealing with staff that are not pro free speech, pro viewpoint diversity. He's dealing with woke staff and he wants to fix it. So as part of that, he brought me in to give a Ted talk, knowing that it would ruffle some feathers, but seeing it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, begin to fix the issue of, of Ted's ideological conformity. And I thought, this is great. This is, uh, you know, an opportunity to help Ted by bringing my perspective. And I have the cosign of the boss. So, you know, whoever gets upset, I, I assume that it won't you know, blow up in, in my face in any way. So I give my TED talk in April. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see just a few people that were upset, but really just a handful in a crowd of almost 2000. And so, you know, the rest of the conference, I made a point of, you know, showing my face and trying to actually find the people that were upset and talk to them. And I was able to find one woman that was extremely upset with me and have a Color and color, demographic, age. Let's picture her. Yeah, she. I mean, she looked about thirty, thirty-five, maybe. She was um, kind of ethnically ambiguous. She may, she may have been, may have been like half something. She, she would likely white. call herself brown. So yeah, like she, doesn't, pers- she probably doesn't think of herself as white. Yeah, and no one would okay. think of her as white. Yeah, but okay. I'm not sure quite sure what she was. Um, and we had a conversation and actually hugged at the end of the conversation, though I, I found later that she was just as mad at me. So I I guess whatever I did didn't work permanently. Um, and so the day after my talk, I get an email from Chris saying that a group called black at Ted would like to speak with you or, or actually to be more precise, 
would you be willing to speak with this group black at Ted? There are some hurt feelings. And maybe if we get you in a room together, this can all be resolved. So I said, sure, happy to speak to them. And then I got an email right after that saying, actually, I don't think they're willing to speak with you. <laughs> so, so, and Black at TED is an employee resource group at TED uh, that creates kind of a safe space for Black employees. Carmen, could you take just a minute to say what TED is uh, for those few people out there who may not know? Yeah, TED is, uh, is an organization dedicated to, quote unquote, ideas worth spreading. You probably everyone, uh, you know, everyone in your audience has seen or heard of a TED Talk, which is really, it's become a cliche of itself only because it it was so popular and and influential. And and as they say, the the best measure of success is becoming a cliche. A TED Talk is a great example of that. Um, Probably just thousands and thousands of teachers have used TED Talks in their classrooms the most viewed ones will probably have well over 100 million views on YouTube and TED combined. So it's, it's, it's a platform for spreading ideas and, and education. Okay, go on. So, um, and, and to be clear, my TED talk was about colorblindness. It was arguing that we should try our best to treat people without regard to race both in our personal lives and in our public policy. That was, that, that was it in a nutshell. So uh, after I get home from the TED conference, a few weeks later, I get an email from Chris saying, there's major blowback to your talk and people are saying that we should not post it at all. So at that point, I, I hadn't actually considered that it might not get posted at all until that point. And the fact that he said that to me, it put me on alert. I thought he may be sort of preparing the ground to tell me that, you know, this, this was, yeah, this was censored. So I became sort of war game mode at this point to try to sort of defend, defend myself. In the same email, he sends me a meta analysis, which he said he got from a social scientist friend, which showed my talk to be inaccurate. So at this point, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, are they preparing the grounds to censor my talk uh, using fact-checking as a pretense, even though it passed the fact-checking team? You know, every word of a TED Talk gets fact-checked before it gets spoken, and you don't deviate from the script at all, and, and I didn't. So I looked at the meta-analysis, and right in the abstract, it said, colorblindness is negatively correlated with stereotyping, and negatively correlated with prejudice, uh, not correlated either way uh, with discrimination. And the only negative finding was that it's negatively correlated with supporting DEI policies. Yes, you heard that correctly. The, The negative finding about colorblindness was that it leads people not to support policies like affirmative action and permissive immigration. That's how the paper defined it, which I thought was circular. Obviously, colorblindness leads people not to support race-based affirmative action, that's, you know, that's definitional. The interesting question would be, does a policy like affirmative action have negative or or positive effects? So so the meta-analysis made no sense as a refutation of my talk. And I pointed that out to Chris and he accepted that answer at the time happily. And what followed was a you know, over the course of a few weeks, Ted pushed me to try to, re- to adopt these strange atypical release strategies. So first they wanted me to participate in a debate and attach the debate to the talk as one entity. And I, I didn't agree to that because I said, look, happy to debate. if It's a separate thing. But I believe my Ted talk, like every other, should stand on its own as an independent product. And attaching something to the end of it, a kind of chaser, implies that it can't be heard without also hearing the other perspective. Or, you know, this is so controversial that it should, all, it should have a kind of addendum. And I thought that that was counterproductive to my purpose, which is to be able to make this kind of an argument less controversial. The right? smugness of these people. 
that they would actually think that that made sense because the issue is structural racism, that it's an exception. The smugness of them. Have they no decency, sir? I, God, that gets my dander up. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I have a question, sure. which is Chris Anderson is not beholden, is he, to a group of employees who are undoubtedly a minority of all of his employees For some who reason, happen to have a beef. Why can't he just tell them, not this time? I've never understood that. That is a fantastic question, Glenn. <laughs> and I don't have the answer. I mean, he... He, he doesn't want to be called a racist. He's, he, he would consider it a hideous thing to be tarred as a racist on social media, even if the number of employees who had a problem with your talk, which I suspect it was, was about three and a half. But to him, you can't be tarred as a racist. But, and I want to hear from Coleman, but I just want to say, he's defending the institution if he says no to their effort to censor. His line would not be, I necessarily endorse colorblindness, this line would be, uh, I have the reputation and the integrity of the TED Talk enterprise to, uh, to uh, be responsible for, and, and I can't let you do this. No? Yes, and to his credit, at the conference, uh, I actually skipped this part of the story. Two days after I gave my talk on the last day of the conference, they had this town hall where everyone gives feedback to TED, the whole audience. At that town hall, it opened up with two people denouncing my talk back to back. One said that it was, it was racist and dangerous and irresponsible. And another guy, a uh, black guy who I actually knew and was kind of acquaintances with, said that I, was, uh, I, I would have a slide back into the days of separate, separate but equal, that I'm nostalgic for the days of separate but equal. And right after that, Chris grabbed the mic and said, thank you for your comments. Uh, but, you know, Ted has to be able to air points of view on these controversial subjects, which I thought was the right thing to say. After that, he more and more buckled to his staff and took the line that, you know, people are hurt. Um, you know, how, how can we release this in a way that teases my staff that, frankly, doesn't want it to be out there at all? So first they had this idea of doing the one video. I said no. Um, and I had to say no just, you know, many, many times. <laughs> and next they had the idea of, okay, let's, let's do a debate and release a TED Talk at the same time on the same day. And I said, no, I, I think you should just release the TED Talk normally, not held hostage to any debate. And, and one, one reason for this was because I've had people back out of debates in the past. You know, I think you both know how tough it can be to get debate partners on this topic. So I thought, you know, there's no guarantee this debate will even happen at all, right? So why, how can I hold my talk hostage to a debate that I don't even know if it will, you know, successfully be planned? So the, the compromise we came to was that they'd release the talk and then two weeks later, they would release this debate. And that was not ideal to me, but I agreed with the compromise and I, I figured that's okay, that's what we'll do. And so they released the talk Two weeks later, they released the debate, uh, which was with Jamel Bowie. And uh, in my mind, I, I had washed my hands of it. And, uh, and I wasn't even paying attention to the situation because I assumed that they had kept up their side of, uh, of the bargain, which was you know, to release the talk and promote it normally. Then Tim Urban, who is a, a blogger and was actually given the most viewed TED Talk of all time on YouTube and uh, a, a quite a famous person within the TED community. He tweets that he believes TED is deliberately under-promoting my TED Talk because it has an implausibly low number of views relative to every other talk. And you know, the way these TED Talks work and are promoted Literally all of them get about half a million views on Ted's website baseline. Uh, and so after Tim tweeted that, I checked to see if he was right. And if you look at the five talks released uh, right around mine to hold time, time constant, they, had, they all had between 450,000 views and like 800,000 views. That was the full range. 
and mine had 73,000 views. So it had 16% of the least, uh, the, the low range of, of the um, of, of the TED Talks released around my time. And you're probably one of the best known of those five people also. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did they not do? Excuse me. What, what did they fail to do that could account for such a dramatically low viewership? So I don't, I don't totally know because I don't, I'm not very familiar with the pipeline of standard TED marketing, but they have yeah. a massive email blast community, for example, they have a podcast called TED Talks Daily, where they repost every talk as an audio podcast. They didn't do that for mine. In fact, they didn't even repost my talk to YouTube, which is pretty much done automatically. And until somebody noticed and said, why have you skipped Coleman's posting Coleman's talk to YouTube? And I, I reached out to them and, and then they did it. What happened next? Um, so when I found that out, I got mad and I felt that they had reneged on their side of the bargain. Uh, and I didn't do anything immediately. I just, you know, took screenshots of all the view counts. Um, and then many weeks later, Barry Weiss just got wind of this story somehow. It had been going around the rumor mill that Ted had done something shady to me. So she reached out to me for for the story in the free press and I felt that it was at this point, it was justified to go public because they had reneged on their end of the uh, their end of the bargain, and I had acted in good faith throughout. Um, so I, I wrote up this whole story for the free press, and it, you know it went fairly Twitter viral in in our kind of spaces, and ended up really, you know, Ted ended up looking quite bad, and then more people ended up seeing my talk than would have ever seen it if they had just promoted it normally. So this is a classic, uh, what they call the Barbara, Barbara Streisand effect, where you try to suppress something and then it ends up actually amplifying it. You know, it's um, very quickly, because this is about you and not me, but I think my story is relevant in showing that this is systemic, so to speak. And I never went public with it because... It wasn't an important interview based on my career, such as where it is. And I've done two TED Talks on language that did very well. So I, wasn't, I didn't even need TED as a new experience. But they did something similar to me. When Woke Racism, my book, came out, they did an audio interview with me. They took up an hour and a half of my time. And Chris and I had a very nice conversation where I said things that, you know, do not get me kicked out of reindeer games, even in, you know, leftist circles <laughs> often enough. You know, I was just doing my centrist thing. And about a month later, I had frankly forgotten about it. I did like 150 interviews for Woke Racism. This was just one of the many. But about a month later, Chris wrote me saying that certain staffers, and I really suspect it's probably three, certain staffers had a problem with my interview. And the way he phrased it with me was, they want to ask you some questions. Would you come in, like physically, and they want to ask you some questions? And I wrote Chris back and I said, I will be happy to answer their questions, but they must be under no impression that I'm going to learn from them. I said, I'm not going to be schooled about structural racism. So about two days go by and Chris writes back something. And Chris is a very nice person. He's very, con- very concerned about these issues. He wants to make change. But all I know is that the interview never ran. It, it is suppressed. And I frankly didn't care enough to make a noise about it. I would have under other circumstances, such as if I had traveled all the way to Vancouver or wherever and done a video talk. But with this, it was just me sitting at my kitchen table. So whatever. But this is what they do. This is what this Black at Ted does. And if you're not towing their line, then they don't want you to get exposure at all through them. And actually, Way back when, when TEDx, the local New York branch, asked me to do something, they wanted me to do something on race. And back then, knowing Ted's reputation already, I said, I don't want to do anything on race because I thought, if I'm going to go to the trouble, I want to at least have a chance of going to California. I didn't imagine it actually happening, but I thought I'm going to at least have a chance. I said, if I say anything about race that I believe with that audience, I would never go to California. So I said, let me do happy language stuff. And they were a little bit skeptical, a little bit resistant, because they had really wanted me to do race stuff. But I thought, it'll never work with that audience. They won't be able to hear me. And I was right. Right. So I did a jolly language thing, got to go to California, did another one a few years later. 
But this is what happens when you do not toe the line on race with Ted these days. And Chris is doing his best, but it's clear that he doesn't want to make those three or four people angry because he would be called a racist on social media. And for him, that would be a bad thing for him. And I imagine also for the brand and the organization. And so I get the feeling he finds it unthinkable. And as a result, something like that happens to you where he puts it up, but I don't know whether it was him or the organization, but the idea is that you must not be fully heard. And then when you confront them, they lie about it. That's not not the way it should be. Now, Coleman, you've got a book coming out on this subject, The End of Race Politics, Arguments for Colorblind America. Uh, I don't know how much you want to talk about the book and what the you know publicity plan is, but I, I move to ask you, what could you have possibly said in your talk that would have had people calling you a racist, declaring your talk to be dangerous, uh, and uh, pressuring their organization to suppress it? Well, I said a few things. One thing I said that I think upset people is colorblindness should not be a dirty word. People associate colorblindness with um, conservatives, even white supremacy. You'll often hear colorblindness is a Trojan horse for white supremacy or that it's reactionary. One thing I said in my talk is that colorblindness was at the core of the anti-slavery movement, the core of the civil rights movement, and was later abandoned. Uh, it, it, the fact that it's now later been abandoned doesn't mean that it wasn't a part of the philosophy of the, of the civil rights movement and that uh, we should, we should uh, reinvestigate the wisdom of it as a principle. The idea of colorblindness is that no one ever gets penalized for their racial identity. And there, there's, a, there's a logic to that um, for governing a, a racially diverse society in the long run. And wherever we want to use social policy to correct for disparities of luck and social advantage, we should prefer to use class and socioeconomics rather than race at this point. Um, That was really the the thrust of my argument that I think set people. Well, it'll be a cliche if I say it, but I'll say it anyway. How ironic (laughs) that the moral position, we should be colorblind, which one associates not only with abolition, but all the way into the 20th century with the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and all of that, would be taken as an emblem of white supremacy. I mean, they don't realize that they're different and how modern they are, these people, in feeling injured at the possibility of their identity not being founded on a melodramatic sense of victimhood. You can see with these people, they're mad. It's like you stepped on their toe or something. You're really irritating them with the idea that this racism that's everywhere, but you know, so difficult to identify that you need a sociologist to do it, that that is not the foundation of their identity as people. Whereas 50 years ago and before, the idea often was, yes, you want colorblindness and you don't want that to be the foundation of your identity. That's why you want the colorblindness and you know that the world isn't perfect. But Lord forbid that your whole life would be about being a victim. Nobody would want to do that because, you know, one day you're not alive anymore and you've let them win if that's what you found your identity upon, especially today when that identity is so fragile and performative and requires so much exaggeration. But these people are mad. Coleman, you are going to get a lot of negative feedback on the basis of this, which I know you can take, but you're going to also get just as much that's positive. But any of the positive feedback the people we're talking about are going to see as white people enjoying being told that they're not racist. And, you know, that's right. just a, a static that can't be avoided. You know? And, you know, in, interestingly, uh, I was attentive to who came up to me in the halls and during the meals at TED and gave me positive feedback. And it was not all white people. No, no, there were, there were lots of black people. Uh, we're relieved. Lots yeah. of people are colored that, that came up to me and said, I loved your talk. And that was, that was gratifying to see. Uh, um, and, and, you know, one, one thing, one other thing I want to say, I, I was quite careful in my talk and I think I'm careful in the book to 
to not endorse the most naive version of colorblindness because people do say things like, I don't see color, which is a very confusing phrase. I think it can, it can be meant well, but it's not true. Everyone is capable of being racially biased. And, and so I don't mean to deny that anywhere. Um, really to or me or racially aware i mean it doesn't have to be biased right it's simply a cognizance of yeah so so people often straw man colorblindness in my view it's a straw man by saying that just means you're pretending race doesn't exist or you're pretending racism doesn't exist no i think race is a social reality um but we should try our very best to treat people without regard to race in most cases and uh, that's really losing sight of that even as a goal. That, that's what's happened on the left. Like 20 years ago, 40 years ago, you would get a lot of people that would say, well, of course, colorblindness is the end goal, but we're not ready for that yet. You've actually heard that less and less, I think. You, to, you, you don't even get that concession now in most places on the left. Um, well, a couple what of things gonna... occurred to me. You want to say something, Jeff? Very quickly. What are you going to do when you've got the book out and um, you're talking to audiences, you're going to schools, et cetera? You realize that you have an, a remarkable monotony coming up. You're going to have one white person after another coming up to you and saying, you know what? I don't get it. I was always raised to treat all people equally. And then they're going to look at you like, what do you have to say to that? They're going to keep saying that, and they're going to keep saying it. And frankly, that's not interesting. You, you understand this. You know. What are you going to say to that person? I'm just trying to put myself in your place, because that's what a lot of people are going to get from it. I was always raised not to think about race. Well, here we are. That, that's what people are going to keep saying. You know? Right. You know, I, I would assume that if they actually read my book, that it's not that you should never think about race broadly or that you should never question yourself. I think my publisher asked me this at one point. They said, is what you're trying to do kind of give people a guilt-free way of thinking about race? And I thought to myself, well, I, I don't know if guilt-free is really what I'm going for or certainly not reflection-free. I do think that you should think about uh, I think in general in life, you should think about your privileges. You should think critically about them. Uh, have you benefited from the fact of your race? Have you benefited from the fact of your gender? Have you benefited from the fact of your socioeconomic standing? These are, these are all questions that you should engage critically with as a person in the, in the world. But, you know, if the, if the honest answer to that question is, you know, I'm, I'm say you're a white guy, you know, born in a single parent home uh, with a drug addicted parent, if the honest answer to that question is actually, no, I don't think I've benefited particularly from my race, then you should stand by that, right? When people say you should reflect on your race, often what they mean is you should automatically feel guilty because you're About a white person, white. right? Regardless yeah, of what your in individual story is. I think you should reflect on your individual story and try to be very honest with yourself and, and, and with the world, but you should not automatically go into this pat formula of white equals privilege, white equals bad, black equals victim. Can I be honest about the fact that it's much better to apply to college as a black person? For me, that's part of my being honest about the influence of race in my life is not to accept the simple narrative um, that, that I'm supposed to imbibe, but rather to be honest about the full spectrum of effects that race has had in my life and race has in others. Um, and, and, and to me, my argument is compatible with that kind of a conversation, given that we all are able to enter this conversation as equals. We're all able to participate in it, and you can be at the table at, at, as a non-person of color, and you're not going to get shut out because... You know, one thing I hate people say is one thing actually people do say frequently and people said at TED reacting to me besides your comment, John, which I get a lot is, well, look, I, I, I'm, I'm just a random white guy. So I, I don't know. I really shouldn't say anything about the topic, but they've learned, their know, lesson, I, I, really. I, <laughs> they've learned that anything that they say is the wrong thing to say. And 
I, that almost bothers me more. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm struck by the use of the word should in your recounting uh, of the experience and in your uh, brief summary of your argument, should. It's a moral philosophic position, should. Uh, and I'm contrasting that with the meta-analysis that you mentioned briefly, claiming that colorblindness has certain consequences or doesn't have them in terms of advancing uh, goals that one might think are socially desirable. Can you address yourself to this distinction between the moral argument and and the causal consequences argument and uh, tell us how you how you think about that? Well, yeah, my. You know, as I think you guys know, I was a philosophy major and I was always attracted broadly to the idea of consequentialism, which is that the, the shoulds in life stem from what the consequences of, of actions or, or even rules are. So broadly, I do think the, certainly in America, I think the consequences of colorblind policy in the long run will be better than the consequences of race-based policies and race thinking in general, um, an obsession with race thinking in general in the long run. And that's my, my impetus to write the book. I, I'm going to push back. Okay. Voting rights. Withdrawing congressional districts in Alabama or South Carolina. The question is whether or not Black people are going to have an opportunity to elect a representative of their choice. Is that a completely incoherent or morally dubious conversation for you? And by that, I mean, I don't see how I can get off the ground in that conversation without A, classifying people based upon their racial identity, B, imputing to some degree a sense of representativeness when the race of the elected official matches the race of the person casting the ballot, and C, uh, implementing on the ground enforcement uh, mechanisms to ensure that, in fact, those people whom I've decided to see as Blacks get to elect a representative of their choice. So how do you square the historical imperative of, in the case at hand, empowering African-American voters, given our history, with your um, position on colorblindness? Yeah, so that's a good question, because I, I think that in the case of of voting rights and and district drawing in, in general, what you get is one side trying to strategically separate um, heavily black districts and disperse them among many districts. And then the other side saying, I see what you're doing there. And, uh, you know, you're trying to strategically dilute the power of a voting block that is recognizable. Uh, and trying to prevent them from doing that by drawing the lines more more closely around uh, the voting block. In some way, both sides are playing. Uh, they're playing with playing on the concept of race. Both sides require the concept of race to achieve political ends there. And so, I, it seems to me valid for Democrats in this case to say, "Look, I, I can see you trying to dilute the power of black voters." in Alabama, not because they're black, but because they're the most reliable Democrat voting bloc. And that's, you know, that's anti-democrat, anti-democratic gerrymandering. And it, and we have to be able to push back against that. I don't think that that, I guess that one case doesn't necessarily extend to the other kinds of race-based policies I'm talking about in the book, for instance. Uh, race-based affirmative action, <clears throat> race-based emergency aid during COVID, um, deciding which restaurant should get aid based on uh, the racial identity of the owner as opposed to the socioeconomic need of the restaurant. Um, you bring up a good example, but I don't think it extends to, uh, I don't think the lesson can be drawn from it that race-based policy in general is, is, uh, is wise or good. Yeah, okay. What about the distinction between 
colorblindness in law and policy and government action on the one hand, and colorblindness in terms of personal affiliation, choice of uh, intimate partner, uh, identity in terms of how I narrate the history of quote unquote my people and all of that. Do you find that to be a at all useful distinction? Absolutely, it's a useful distinction. I think that, you know, if, if you are a person that says, look, I agree with you that there should be no race as a, as a category really to, on which to base social policy. But in my own life, I'm black or, or I'm, I'm Korean or I'm Jewish. And I, to be perfectly honest, prefer to be with my own. I'm going to marry someone that is of my culture. Most of my friends are of my culture. I have nothing against other cultures, but it's where I feel comfortable and it, it gives me an identity. It gives me a story. Um, and this is the story of my people and it, it has meaning for me. I think that there's not much I can say to such a person because they, they agree that it should be kept out of the public sphere in a way. It should be kept out of public policy and should be kind of a private thing. Uh, if I go to if I go to a, de a deli in Harlem and, you know, it's everyone working at the deli is Yemeni, they're not hiring colorblind, right? Do I do I have a problem with the Yemeni deli owner that only wants to associate with other Yemenis? No, not really. I think that uh, to, to be consistent, uh, I feel I may want to, you know, personally, I live a pretty co cosmopolitan life. And. I, I would defend the cosmopolitan life in the sense of I have friends of every race and I like that. I like that I'm open to having friends of every race um, and, and associating uh, from a place of Coleman as an individual as opposed to Coleman, a, a raced person. I don't but, think that's the human default, though, Coleman. I, I don't think, think it is the human. That's right. Go, I don't yeah. think it's. I don't think it's the human default and I don't judge as immoral the people that have a strong attachment. What I would want them to do is observe the distinction that you just made, that it's fine for you to have that in your own life, but let's draw a bright line between your personal private decisions and private values and what should be included in public policy. But suppose they're white is the question. Suppose a white person says, well, I like my people. Look, to, to be consistent, I, if they're not, if they're living <laughs> their own life, if they're living their own life and not insisting that there be pro-white public policies, how are they hurting me? Well, I think I can hear Black Ed Ted calling right now to answer that question. <laughs> well, because suppose you need a job. Like, suppose it's like a white chain store. Suppose it's Target. I mean, I okay, think we've yeah. gotten to the point that Target would never have such a public policy. But suppose this denies you opportunities for employment. It's a relatively thinly settled small town area. And the whites Let decide, me just mention, John, the hmm? Civil Rights Act of 1964, I'm pretty sure, has a minimum number of employees where it doesn't apply below 15 or something like that. Is that true? So if I'm opening up my Yemeni bakery or my mom and pop bodega, it doesn't apply to me and I can be preferential in my I didn't hiring know that. policy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that either, I, I think, but that, that, that makes, you know, I, I wonder if that distinction makes sense because it's, it's, it's the reality or there's some deeper wisdom to it. Um, you know, if you have a big chain store to see, to have them rejecting, rejecting every black applicant, to have Walmart rejecting every black applicant, um, it, it just, it wouldn't make sense because for so many different reasons, but it just doesn't, it doesn't bother you to see a, a mom and pop shop where everyone is even in the same family, much less the same race. Is there really a yeah. Yemeni deli in Harlem? Oh, many, many. <laughs> I didn't Henry, know that. In fact, when I, when I was at Columbia, I would make a point of microaggressing every deli owner by asking where they're really from 
and the Yemenis don't mind. <laughs> but uh, almost every one to a one was from Yemen specifically. And I thought that was interesting because it, it, it's a country I knew nothing about, a rather small country, and yet they own and operate a huge number of delis in Harlem. I didn't know that had become a thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and ethnic enterprise, one thinks of the Vietnamese nail salons or the Korean greengrocers or whatever. And there's a whole backstory about social capital and how people pull together and finance and mutually support each other within their identity-based social networks, which are economically valuable. And, you know. and by the way, this so is, on. you know, when, when I was heavily reading Thomas Sowell in, in college, and so I felt I was coming across a... a obvious real life example of, um, of just a, 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 a sub industry and in part of a, part of a city that was just dominated by one ethnic group. Um, and, and that was, that became interesting to me. So I always made a point of asking mm-hmm. and it wasn't Arab in general. It was always Yemeni. So have you reached closure with, uh, Chris Anderson and the, the TED organization, or y'all still mad at each other? I mean, look, I, <laughs> I, I posted a, they posted a response and then I posted a response and that's, that's where I've left it. I don't think that either Chris or Adam Grant has really issued the kinds of apologies or retractions or acknowledgements that would be merited in this situation. In other words, Chris has not acknowledge that they deliberately didn't promote the talk. Chris is a great guy, but he wrote that message of his is just, it's boilerplate. He, he very artfully said nothing. I was, I was surprised, honestly. Yes, I agree. He's a, he's a nice guy and has been very civil throughout the whole process. And we're still on speaking terms. So we're not, we're not any kind of bitter enemies, but um, I, I do feel at a base level, interpersonally, even privately, you should acknowledge the thing that was done or, or deny it and call me wrong. Um, but you can't just not address it, in my view. It shows you the, the reign of terror of this kind of ideology that it would force someone like him into behaving that way. Speaking of what cannot be not addressed, uh, we're here on, on October purpose. 14th. 2023, exactly one week after October 7th, uh, which was the day just a week ago on which the Hamas terrorist organization launched a historically unprecedented massive assault against civilian targets in the south of Israel, killing many hundreds, kidnapping, mutilating, desecrating, slaughtering men, women, children, elderly, Etc. I could go on. I think everybody in earshot knows what I'm talking about. And I just feel like uh, we probably ought to close our conversation out here today. None of us are necessarily experts on this particular uh, subject matter in foreign policy, but we are citizens uh, of this country and of the world uh, with some commentary about these events. John? I um, have been very struck by a lot of the social media commentary from the left about this particular thing that Hamas did. And I've also been impressed by how many of them have peddled it back um, in view partly of how truly horrific the data has come to be. And then also for the less admirable reason of just not wanting to be roasted on social media for heartlessness. But the idea that Hamas was justified in the extent of what they did, not just a few missiles, I hate to say not just a few people murdered, but this, that that was justifiable because they are the oppressed rather than the oppressor in this situation. What I see is a laziness among a certain kind of thinker on the hard left. And that's basically that the world is about white people and black people, white of various kinds and black of various kinds. And Hamas... And the Palestinians, in this case, are seen as the black people, and the Jews are seen as the white people. And the idea is that you can do anything, that anything is justified in order to get the quote-unquote white person's boots off of your neck. 
including what Hamas has done here. And I completely understand that Israel has blood on its hands as well. But Hamas started this one and in such an extreme way. And yet there are people who would actually sit there and applaud that kind of butchery, including people who Hamas themselves would have nothing but disgust for and might even consider interfering with their being living people. For anybody who's gay to cheer on Hamas because they're coming from the left, for example, how long would they last in, in Gaza? What kind of life would they have led? And that goes for a lot of other people, including people who are not men. Just the idea that the, they are heroes. I find it lazy. I find it lazy as, Glenn, you'll get this one, um, cheering the rioters on in 2020 because you know people tearing down their own neighborhoods because of George Floyd. Because they're black, it's okay to tear down your own neighborhood. And you see this sort of thing again and again, this idea that if the person is oppressed, then it's okay for them to do things that would chill you to your socks if you saw the oppressor doing it, even if the oppressor was doing it much, much less. And it's disturbing because it's condescending. Basically, you're saying that Hamas, having no responsibility for their actions, oppression has made them less than fully human and beyond responsibility. And because Black Americans are seen that way so often in so many situations, it's, um, it, 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 it irritates me. The idea that an educated person in particular would look at what happened, would look at what happened even with the rave and think, yay, hooray. I'm, I'm utterly disgusted because those people think they're ahead of the curve. They, they think that they're the enlightened ones, but no, they're, they're in the dark. It's awful. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I don't know if you saw this tweet going around. It was like, what did y'all think decolonization meant? Vibes? That was the first one that got me. Yeah. So, so... <laughs> The idea is, is like, it's, that's literally just a full um, excusing of, of slaughtering civilians on account of the goal being decolonization. Now, this gets to one, one, one of the deepest and I think most important questions when you're looking at this conflict or any conflict, which is what are the actual end goals of each side? I was thinking about this the other day. When we think about World War II, nobody says... You know, uh, what a horrible war. I just, I'm thinking about the innocent loss of life on both sides. And that would be an appropriate reaction, but it's not how we tend to think about World War II. We tend to think, thank God the Allies beat the Nazis and prevented them from building a genocidal empire. In other words, we think about the goals of each side of the conflict, knowing that waging war uh, uh, entails terrible, terrible things in general. If you asked what really are the end goals of Hamas and what are the end goals of Israel, I think you come to two very different visions. Right? I, I, I think that Hamas wants to do what it did on October 7th, ideally, to every Jew in Israel, eradicate them by any means necessary, and then establish a Palestinian, Palestinian Islamic state over the whole land. I think and that one is clue, their goal. And one clue that you're correct is that they say so. Yes, and they're they're quite explicit about that in their charter. Uh, And it makes sense of all their behavior, um, including their behavior towards their own people. Now, on the other hand, what does Israel want? Or I'm sure if you ask the settlers in the West Bank, they want something different and more religious sounding than secular Israelis. But on the whole, we pretty much know what Israel wants because they have the power to, they have the power in the situation, right? If they wanted what Hamas wanted, but in reverse, if they wanted to eliminate every Palestinian, every Arab, they could do that tomorrow. They could have done it 50 years ago. This is Sam Harris's argument. Yeah. I mean, I I think we should credit him because I made, I, I just saw him make exactly this argument. You judge the sides by imagining what they would do if they had power. Israel has the power to kill a lot more Palestinian babies than it has, in fact, killed. I ask you to think about how many Jewish babies would be killed by Hamas if they had the ability to deliver that uh, death to them. This is the argument. You know what, though, worries me very quickly is that um, talk about weak thinking. If Israel goes in there and levels the whole northern 
half of Gaza, which it looks like as we record this, that's what they're thinking about doing, telling people to leave, and then they're just going to run it down flat. It's painfully clear that what that's going to create is another generation of bored, angry, undereducated young men who hate Israel and keep on doing the same sort of thing. I don't see how it could be different. And I wonder if Israel could consider not doing that because I'm not sure what would be gained except for a temporary reprieve by bulldozing where most people in Gaza live and also inevitably killing a whole lot of people while they're doing it. I certainly understand the emotional appeal, but I don't see why that is a, is a useful tactic. And I'm afraid that's what is coming up. Israel needs to talk about having the power. I wish they could exhibit a certain forbearance, which is maybe too much to ask. I'm not running Israel, but still. Now, I, yeah. I, I know enough. I, I agree with you uh, from an outside perspective. I know enough Israelis to know what, what a kind of Israeli perspective on that question might sound like. And it might sound like something like this. Uh, you know, everything we have tried has led to more terror. When, when we have tried the forbearance, in other words, they unilaterally pulled out of Gaza, which was not, that was a kind of a left-wing decision in, in a sense. Like they didn't get anything for it. They did what the, what the, what the pro-peace, pro-peace crowd wanted and just pulled out of occupied territory. And they feel what they got in response was more terror. Right? They got Hamas took over. Uh, they offered Palestinians a, a state uh, in 2000, uh, Camp David and and uh, Clinton parameters, and they feel they were rewarded by the Second Intifada, which was, you know, similar to what happened on on 10/7, but just stretched out over many years. So they feel that both the conciliatory approach has led to more terror, and the tough approach has led to more terror, and I, I think that they were just, you know. They would rather err on the side of absolute security because, you know, the carrot and the stick seem to yield the same result, right? It seems like they're, they're fighting an enemy that is just committed to their destruction no matter what they do. And I think there's a lot of Israelis that really would have been more moved by that kind of logic 20 years ago, but they feel that they've been burned by it so many times before that they have now moved to the tough security focused end of the spectrum. And then the result will be these young men feeling like they're living in a cage, gradually rebuilding Gaza, but with their whole identities based on hating Israel and hating Jews. In a way, and this is, I don't mean to equate the two things, but it's kind of like, this brings it into a circle. The kind of people at the TED who can't listen to you saying those perfectly sensible things because it undermines their sense of what it means to be a thinking person and what it means to matter. You're taking away part of their essence. Much, much worse here. All they've got, you know, they've got no education, no employment, no employment possibilities. And so their whole selves are going to be about avenging 2023. That's what happens to human beings when they don't have enough to hold on to. I don't know what the answer is, but yeah. Let, let me say a couple of things. I mean, one thing that occurs to me right away is Hamas is not the Palestinian people. It is Hamas. It's a terror organization. It's an Islamist organization. It is what it is. So those people here in the United States who have sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians, and I'm one of them, need to be very clear about the nature of that organization. And the moral clarity to be able to see barbarism and terror for what it is need not uh, come at the expense of being able to sympathize with the historical disaster for Palestinian Arabs, which the creation of the state of Israel, for many of them, has, has, has led to. There, it seems to me no need to choose between those two things. Um, the other thing I want to say is I has just been flabbergasted by the tepid, equivocating, uh, uh, timid responses of some people like presidents of universities like the one that I work for 
who, when George Floyd got killed in Minneapolis and some people were running around burning down neighborhoods and uh, uh, cities around the country, were able to speak with great clarity and specificity uh, about the about the moral wrong that was at stake. Um, so, for example, uh, Claudine Gay, president of Harvard University, has come under considerable pressure and has had to back and fill and issue multiple statements um, after some student organizations uh, basically said Israel was responsible for everything that Hamas wrought on October 7th. And uh, some observers, powerful associates of Harvard University, alumni, the former president, Lawrence Summers at the university and so forth, castigated the leadership of the university for allowing those statements to go unanswered by the uh, front office, the administrative uh, leadership of the university, to the effect that those people can say what they want, but they don't speak for Harvard. Here's what we think about that. And only after cajoling and uh, public uh, embarrassment uh, were uh, a, a more refined condemnation of the terror uh, to be heard uh, forthcoming from Harvard's administration. And they are not alone in this. Uh, so I don't know, it, it strikes me as an interesting moment here where a lot of stuff is getting laid bare. Um, Antifa is supposed to be an anti-fascist organization. What Hamas wrought in southern Israel could, I think, not uh, unreasonably be likened to a pogrom against Jews fueled by anti-Semitism and bearing no small resemblance to what happened in Europe in the Second World War. I haven't heard the anti-fascists who are running around talking about uh, Donald Trump uh, denouncing the anti-Semitism of, uh, of the Hamas movement. Because they think of and Hamas as the black people. Yeah. Uh, the anti-colonialists. And here, let me, let me <laughs> uh, go one step further. Civilization versus barbarism. The West, order, enlightenment, human rights, abolition, freedom versus the dark ages. Are we seeing graphically being played out before our eyes the necessity to make a choice? Where do you stand? Do you stand with the forces who would undermine and tear down the achievements of the last 300 years? Where Israel stands with those achievements? Or do you take your postmodern, uh, post-critical theory, post-colonial ideological uh, views to the point of being able to look askance at the murder of hundreds of people in the name of fascist ideas, you choose. Yeah, I want to underscore one thing you said, you know, the difference between Hamas and, and the Palestinian people. Obviously, Hamas was elected and, and they're way more popular than, than you would hope, unfortunately, with Palestinians. On the other hand, they... Uh, they're quite clear about the fact that they do not care whether their own people live or die. Because in, in, and they say this out loud, because in, in their ideology, which is extremist and uh, religious, they actually believe each Palestinian that dies in their effort to fight Israel goes straight to heaven. So when Israel, Israel right now is telling, or yesterday told a million Gazans to, to, to go south, which is of course, you know, really, practical and probably an absolute humanitarian disaster. Um, Hamas told them to stay put because Hamas, it, it actually doesn't seem to move them whether Palestinian civilians die because they, they appear to be true believers. They, they appear to believe all of those children killed by Israeli bombs go straight to heaven. And so there's, there's, there's no cognitive dissonance when, they're, when they hide their uh, headquarters underneath a hospital, or they shoot, they shoot rockets from a mosque. Um, this is um, this is a mindset that can't be comp compromised with. Um, we get near the end, but I, I just want to mention I read this piece in the Atlantic this morning uh, by George Packer, 
uh, who says, let's remember 9-11 as we think about October 7th, October 7th being Israel's 9-11. And let's remember the disaster that ensued for the United States and for the world when we reacted as we did to the tragedy of 9-11, first by invading Afghanistan, and we were there forever until we left ignominiously, but more fundamentally by invading and uh, deposing Saddam Hussein in Iraq, which I think we can now acknowledge in retrospect wasn't exactly the smartest move. Uh, President George W. Bush with a bullhorn standing on the rubble of the World Trade Center saying, uh, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists is one thing overreaction and living with the consequences of your bellicose overreaction to your own victimization for decades at the expense of trillions is another. Israel, be careful. This is George Packer on my reprise. What do you think? It's important. And yeah, the whole I think it, the, the barbarism point, Glenn. See, there's so many people among us who would say that the barbarism is okay if it's the oppressed, that there's nothing else they could do, and at least the barbarism is striking against the colonization coming from a whiteness that needs to be questioned. And so for them, it's that paradigm. So it's not barbarism, it's a necessary kind of authenticity and a punch against um, predatory imperial whiteness them, that's the paradigm. And so they would choose the barbarism. And, you know, they say things, they cluck, cluck, you know, well, it's unfortunate, et cetera. But for them, it's almost a Hegelian thing, I get the feeling. That's the way history has to proceed. That's a hard thing to cut through. I mean, maybe I'm just getting too upset about a certain, a certain kind of person who is in the commentariat. I mean, what really matters is the lives of the people on that little piece of land. But, yeah. <sighs> The Gulag Archipelago, Stalin. Cambodia, Paul, Paul, Cappuccia, Paul Pot. Uh, how many starved to death in China? I mean, liberal values actually have something to go in for them uh, in terms of uh, the creation of uh, political circumstances that allow for human flourishing. And the opposite of liberal values have consequences that can be measured in millions of lives. This is not nothing. This is, as they say, a moment of truth. And uh, the, the, the last thing I'll say is I think um, the direction Israeli politics is going in uh, more and more to the right, not just because of this incident, but prior to it, partly as a result of just the demographics of the country. You know, uh, the ultra-Orthodox used to be a tiny minority, and now it's like a third of Israeli children under a certain age are ultra-Orthodox, tend to be, you know, pro-settling the West Bank, pro-expanding those settlements for religious reasons. It, it, it appears to be a very, very grim situation to me because a, a huge opportunity was missed in 2000. That's the closest they ever came to a, to a two-state solution. And the, the Israeli public has only gotten more, you know, gone more to the right since then. The, the Palestinian public has been rejectionist throughout. And so I think the opportunities for a, a real durable political solution, it's possible that they've just, they, they've just passed this by permanently. And this is, this is something that will only be resolved through violence uh, for the foreseeable future, which is uh, just, it could get worse, you know, sad to contemplate. Yep. Yeah. Um, I went on one of those um, uh, expeditions of American journalists and intellectuals to Israel a few years ago. Oh, yeah. And met with people all over the place and uh, politicians and journalists and professors and um, civic leaders and whatnot. Uh, spend some time in Ramallah and talk with Palestinian uh, leadership there, PLO leadership there. And I came away, this was maybe three years ago, thinking, my God, uh, the two-state solution is just not going to happen. 
from either side. We're going for creeping annexation on the West Bank. And I don't know what the hell you do with Gaza. That's two million people, two and a half million people uh, sitting there. And I thought, I thought the unspeakable thought that the Zionist movement culminating in the establishment of the state of Israel in many ways a triumph for human values has also been a great tragedy, producing a situation that could go on for another 75 years of awful conflict and cycles of violence and uh, recrimination and whatnot. And uh, that's just tragic. Uh, I'm not an expert here, not by any means. I don't see a way out. Oh, we should mention something. I can feel it coming. As you mentioned, the, the settlements, they're not, they're not central to the current events here. But there's some people who are going to think that, based on the discussion we've just had, that we need to be told about the settlements. I want it to be clear, folks, that we know. And I have often questioned Israelis about settlements and keeping on doing it. and you know, what, what the other side of the argument is supposed to be on that. And so I don't think we've had this discussion not knowing about the issue of settlements. Somebody actually would write us and say, did you know? Yes, we, we did know. Well, that was implicit in what I was just saying. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I don't see a way out, because right. I, I was at Gush Etzion, which is one of the, um, quote, settlements in the disputed, not occupied territories is the way they referred to it. Those people had dug in. Mm-hmm. They're not going anywhere. It's their home. They, they, it is yeah, in exactly. their minds. It, yeah. At last. They are home at last. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I've seen, you know, terrible videos of, of, you know, them throwing rocks at Palestinians yeah. and so forth. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's a very difficult issue, especially for the secular Israeli public that doesn't quite feel the, 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 the religious attachment to that land. They don't necessarily think it's, biblically owed to them, but they also, they struggle to criticize the settlers and the settlements the way an outsider can easily do because they still feel in some ways they're people. Um, and, and it's a, it's a very difficult issue for them. And, and, and also they don't want to compromise and give the impression that the settlements are the reason for the terrorism. It, they will tell you the terrorism has been happening continuously, regardless of what goes on, right? For regardless of whether the settlements are frozen, it's been going on since before the settlements started, right? Before we occupied the West Bank. So they, 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 I think they're right to draw a distinction that the settlements are not, you know, Hamas is not going to stop trying to murder Israelis if they roll back the settlements, right? It's, it's fundamentally a rejectionist. Um, and genocidal movement on the part of the terrorists. Nevertheless, the settlements uh, are, are I, I don't think they're defensible from a secular point of view. If you don't share the religious attachment to the land, I'm not sure you can really defend the expansion of, of settlements, and I would, I would never be tempted to. Okay, well, um, here we are, uh, way out over our skis on probably the most uh, uh, intractable um, political conflict on the planet today, arguably so. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not experts, I'll say it again, but we are citizens and we are moral beings and we have to speak to these matters and so we've done. Thank you, Coleman, for coming on The Glenn Show with John McWhorter. And uh, good luck with the book. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. 